welcome to the Redeemer Rockford Students Podcast. My name is JT Stead, and I'm the host and also the student and outreach pastor here at Redeemer Church. And uh, I, along with all of our leaders, are recovering from an awesome uh, rooted retreat that we had this last week. We took about 154 total people out to Leaf River in Ogle County and had a two-night retreat, Um, just camping out. Some of us were intense. It was pretty intense. Um, Yes, that's a dad joke. I'm a dad now, so I could officially do that. Uh, But we had a great time. And uh, I brought one of my good friends, Andrew Hartung, out from Southern California. He attends my dad's church, and he's served in the youth ministries and the college ministries. And he's a teacher now at a private Christian school out there, and just a lover of God and His Word, and really gifted at teaching the Bible. And so we looked at the topic of holiness all weekend long. And so what you're about to hear are sermons from our Rooted Retreat delivered by Andrew. And so I hope that you're encouraged by them and that they only bolster your faith and build you up in the knowledge of Jesus Christ so that you may behold him, love him, treasure him, and live for him. Thanks for listening. You know, getting to know JT, as he said, our connection point is Luke Abendroth, who's my roommate. And not just roommate, like we share rent in a building, but we share a room. Our beds face each other, and, you know, we chuck little theological conversations to each other all day, every day. And sometimes we stay up too late, like we're little kids at a sleepover, like we haven't lived together for years. And uh, those kind of relationships started at this kind of level that have been so definitional to my life and to see the way that God works in the body of Christ to shape you and to sharpen you and to put you in this place, this youth group more broadly, but here in this moment tonight, this weekend, there's something about being a camp speaker. It's like the funnest thing you can possibly do because I've, like I've said, I've been around youth ministry and your, your leaders make a lot of sacrifices I just get to fly in, have all the fun, preach the word, and just be like, you know, meeting people. And a lot of prayer comes up to this moment in time where we're going to sit before the word of God together. And I I just want to tell you guys as a personal note from my heart, my goal for this week is to put you before the Lord as much as I possibly can. Not before myself, but before his word. I have the, the privilege of being a Bible teacher at a Christian school, and it's so fun, and I love it. And I'll tell you that it's not the same as the promises that God has made to the church. The gates of hell may prevail against my little Bible school, but they won't prevail against the church. And the the body that's made up, the difference of preaching to a group of you guys is kind of the difference, I think, of preaching to Christians. And when I preach a lot of times at the school, it's kind of like being an Old Testament prophet where no one really cares. And you know there's a faithful remnant out there. You know someone's hearing the word of God and it's his work. But it's a tremendous privilege for me to be able to preach to a group like you guys. I see pens, I see notebooks, I see Bibles. And like I said, this is not normal in the best of ways. So soak it up. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray and we're going to get into the word together. Heavenly Father, the work that we so desire that would be done this week is only a work you can do. Lord, all the preparation and the prayer is an appeal for you to work in a way that we couldn't possibly imagine. In all that we do hope and all that we imagine, Lord, your word reminds us that you're able to do far more than all that we ask. 
And so I pray that as we sit before your word and we consider your holiness, Lord, that it would be a time of edification, a time to remind us of the kind of God that we've received reconciliation from, or that you would be merciful to us, even in the way that you give us energy as we wane and sleep throughout the week, Lord, that you would just give us energy, remind us of this special moment that we have. I pray these things in your name. Amen. Why holiness as a topic for camp? I just went to a retreat where we had a speaker that came in and did not really tell us anything about God. He said a lot of things invoking the name of God, but he didn't tell me who God is. I felt almost grieved after each sermon that many souls were in front of, in theory, the word of God being preached, but he held back Christ from us, and he invoked the name of Christ over and over again, but he never said who he was. And the holiness of God, God being completely other, completely different than us, is the foundation that we need to have if we're going to regard God rightly, if we're going to regard ourselves rightly, and ultimately that plays into how we're going to view our sin, and then that view of sin, how we're going to view the Savior who saves us from our sin. And so tonight what I want to do is I just want to start off, and we're just going to call this sermon Encountering a Holy God. I think a lot of churches are godless in a very sad way. There's a lot of low God language. And a low view of God leads to sermons that apologize for what God says about himself. That's afraid to say that sin is sin. And it's sin because it violates the character of God. And we end up wrestling with questions that we wouldn't wrestle with if we knew the God who was in control. I think of stories like Job. Who's familiar with the book of Job? Anyone know off the top of their head how long the book of Job is? 42 chapters. You know what's funny is you can, you can repeat the story of Job to someone in like under a minute. What is Job about? Well, Job's about a guy named Job who's very rich and has a lot of blessings, but he's also a righteous man. And God and Satan make a wager that if you took away everything, that all of Job's blessings, that he would not worship God. And so they go back and forth, and he takes everything away. And Job is mourning, and he's grieving, and his friends try to show up and tell him, here's what's going on, this is why you're suffering, here's my idea. And then God shows up, he says who he is, and he restores Job. What part of that story takes up 42 chapters? If I can say the whole basic story to you, what part is so long that it's a 42-chapter book? And it's the part where people are wrestling with this question, who is God and how does he work? It's his friends going back and forth and guessing, well, you have to be suffering because of sin. There's no other way. Or you're lying to us, you're hiding something. And they're kind of just guessing, trying to figure out what Job might be guilty of. And when God shows up to the scene, he doesn't ever tell Job what happened. All he tells Job is who he is. He doesn't say, Job, here's what happened. I made a deal with Satan. 
and you need to trust me. He says, Job, where were you when I walked at the depths of the sea? Where would I, were you when I set the foundations of the earth? Are you the one that feeds the birds? He just reminds Job, Job, you're a creature, you're a man. I'm God. And I think some of the stuff that we wrestle with, we just need to have a higher view of God. We tend to make God like ourselves. If anyone is going to make a religion up, their God sounds very human. They do human things. They have human emotions. They flare up. If you read any uh, Greek mythology, if you like Greek mythology or Roman mythology or anything like that, their gods are just kind of big children with power. They just kind of are mad one day or they're hungry one day and so they make a volcano and something. Like, it's totally human behavior. And God warns us in Psalm 50. He says, you've looked at my patience where I have not punished you. And you've mistakenly thinking, thought that I'm like you. He says, you make the mistake of thinking that I'm like you. That I can look at sin idly. He says, but I'm declaring to you now that sin has consequences. That I'm coming to judge. There's a, a recent poll that they do every two years. And it's a poll that tries to cover the state of evangelicalism. What do Christians believe? In this poll that came out this year on basic questions about the Christian faith was relatively discouraging, to say the least. Half of evangelicals say that God learns that he's not all-knowing. 60% of evangelicals say that God or that human beings are born innocent. 56% of evangelicals say that God accepts worship from all religions. 43% of evangelicals believe that Jesus was a great teacher, but he wasn't God. 38% say that truth is a matter of opinion, that it's not objective. 28% would say that the Bible's views of homosexuality don't apply today. More than half don't believe that the Holy Spirit is a person. They think it's like the force. More than half disagree with the claim that even the smallest sin requires eternal punishment. These are relatively basic confessions of the Christian faith. When we were singing the first song, This I Believe, you may know this already or you may not, but that song is taken from the Apostles' Creed. And the Apostles' Creed is, you know, at the earliest, 1,600 years old, if not 1,800 years old. So we're confessing the same truths here today that Christians have for almost 2,000 years. And right in that song is we believe in the deity of Christ, and we believe in the deity of the Spirit, and we believe in the virgin birth, and we believe God. And I believe that so much of our problems is that we don't start with God. Who is God? What is He like? I'm going to pray one more time as we actually open the text of Scripture to answer that question. God, please show us who you are in your word. Lord, let the word be clear to us. Holy Spirit, please impress the truth upon our hearts. Lord, please give us focus and let us be an aid to the person next to us and not a distraction. I pray these things in your name. Amen.
We're going to be learning from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is roughly in the middle of your Bible. It's quite a long book, so if you just flip through, you'll find it. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 6. Now, Isaiah's job, what he does for a living, is he's a prophet. So he receives revelation from God, and he goes and he tells the people, and he goes and he tells the king of Israel. And in this chapter, we have a, a, a scene that it almost feels like when you read it, that we, don't, we shouldn't even have the privilege to see this. We shouldn't have the privilege to be invited into this level of crazy heavenly glory, this holiness that Isaiah is going to experience. And it's very interesting. We read in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, he says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. This uh, last September on the 8th, Queen Elizabeth, after 70 years as the longest reigning monarch, passed away. And she reigned longer than most people on the earth have been alive. Now, if the queen's job was more consequential, meaning whoever was the royal whoever wore the crown was actually completely sovereign in their decisions, it would be a very stressful time to be British. Do we have turmoil when it comes to elections in the United States? All right, imagine if that person was going to be in charge as long as they lived. And now you understand kind of what the temperament would be of somebody when their king or their queen dies. There might be some mourning... We're very sad. He's saying this is a year that King Uzziah died, but it's also a time of high anxiousness. Because whatever happens, change is coming. And there's no guarantee that the next king is going to be good. And in the history of Israel, it's almost guaranteed that they're not going to be good. And what's sad for Israel at this time is King Uzziah, by every human metric, is a very successful king. He's very strong. He's very powerful. If you read 2 Chronicles 26, it says that he has an army of 2,600 mighty men that lead a bigger army of 327,000 men. And that his fame is known all the way to the border of Egypt. And he built these crazy weapons. He talks about these machines that he built on the towers around Jerusalem that shot arrows and threw big stones. And it says he grew very strong. But it also says that when he grew strong, he grew proud. And one day Uzziah decides as the king that he's going to go into the temple of God and he's going to burn incense to God. Is that a problem? Yeah, someone tell me why that's a problem. Why can't he do that? Only the priests were allowed to do that. So Uzziah decides he's going to go in and do it anyways. And the high priest at the time and 80 other priests try to physically stop him. And they say, Uzziah, it is not for you to do this. It's not your job. And he goes and he does it anyways. And God strikes him with leprosy. 
such that not only can he not go into the temple ever again, he's outcast from society, and it will be that leprosy that kills him. So that's the background of the death of Uzziah. Your king, who is mighty and great, and he reigned for 52 years, has just died because God killed him. And Isaiah says, in that year, I had a vision of the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up. The Lord still sitting upon the throne. I think it's a great reminder even in our American system where we are very hyper-focused on who's in office, where and why. and We get very worried about the political system to know that God is on the throne. In the gnarliest transitions of American politics and the world scene, in that time, the Lord is on the throne. He says, I saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and lifted up. This is a phrase that's only used of God. Right? I saw him, I was in the room, and he was exalted, he was high, and he was lofty. And it says, the train of his robe filled the temple. Going back to the topic of the queen, no one knows how to make a ceremony over the top like the British monarchy. Their outfits are insane. Their hats are crazy. Did anyone watch her funeral? It's, you know, it's, it, there's so many ceremonies of the way they do things and the way they set things. And I actually watched a video of her coronation when she became queen, when she was 25. And it was one of the first, if not the first broadcast that ever came from the United, to the United States across the Atlantic. So this was in the 50s. And... It's interesting because she's wearing the craziest outfit. Her dress is super long. And then the dukes come and they swear their allegiance. And they're wearing these long things. And it's all to show majesty and glory. And it says that when Isaiah saw God, the only way he could explain it was the train of his robe. Like the hem, the, the part that flowed off, filled the temple. What God was wearing even was glorious. And then we're introduced to the, the, these creatures in the temple called seraphim. He says, above him, verse 2, stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. which With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. I remember growing up and thinking, there's got to be some part of the Bible that gives way more explanation on what these heavenly beings are and what they're like. And I don't want to let you down. There's not. There's not that book of the Bible that you're missing that explains, what are seraphim? Give me more. What is going on here? It sparks our imagination. You know, we see Isaiah says, I come, I come into the temple and I see God. And he's exalted and he's on the throne. And these creatures that are six-winged beings. And with two he covers his face. And with two he covers his feet. And with two he flies. When God creates, he tends to create animals suited for their environment. That poor goldfish was feeling probably pretty fine in the water. And then I think one got thrown. You know, as someone who has been in youth ministry in California is lamer than Illinois, I, all I'd be thinking is I'm going to get 40 emails. <laughs> so JT, I pray good health on you and that you don't get too many emails. 
But when God creates animals, he doesn't create fish that can't swim or birds that can't fly. He creates them suited for the place that they live. And the seraphim are designed to be in the presence of God. That's what they're for. And what's interesting is that even designed rightly to be before the presence of God, they have to cover their face. They have to cover their face from the radiant glory of God. They have to cover their feet. Right? I think of Moses when he, when he goes up to the burning bush. What does God tell him to do? Take off his shoes. This ground is holy ground. There's something creaturely about feet. And so to honor God, they're, they're covering their face probably out of self-protection. And they're covering their feet out of reverence for God. And they're flying. It's magnificent. Seraphim don't have sin. Why do they have to cover their face from the radiant glory of God? God's glory is so powerful. This is actually a good reminder for us that the difference between you and God is not just your sin. Right? That's not the only thing that makes God different. God would be holy to you if you had no sin. God is glorious in other that even in perfection, these seraphim who have no sin nature can't bear to just sit there and take the full power of God's presence. And what's amazing is these seraphim, they're in the environment they're supposed to be, they're covering their face, they're covering their feet, they're flying. And it's what they say to each other. One called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. What does it mean when that word Lord is all capitalized, small capitalized? What does it mean? Anybody know? First look at it. You notice how that word Lord is capital L and then smaller but still all capitals? That means that it's God's covenant name, Yahweh. So if you look at the first time Lord is brought up, when he says that he came into the temple in the year that Uzziah died, he said, I saw the Lord. That's a title. I saw Adonai. I saw the Lord. But when these angels are proclaiming His glory, they say, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The name that God gave to Moses when he, Moses asked him, who should I say sent me to Pharaoh to tell the people, to tell him to let my people go? He says, tell him Yahweh sent you. Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh. You know, repetition in anything that you read indicates that it's important. Right? If someone repeats themselves, it matters. If someone texts you, it matters. Your dad will always text me. He'll ask me a question, and then he'll send a question mark, and then two question marks, and then if I don't respond in that amount of time, it'll be three question marks. It's so annoying. <laughs> Does he do this to you? Yes. Yeah, and it, it'll usually be pretty quick succession. It doesn't take long for it to be urgent. Yeah. Repetition clues you in that something matters. And I want to think principally about God's Word for a second. To us, the Bible feels relatively long. It would take us a little while to read the whole thing. Technically, 72 hours if you read at an average speed, which is actually pretty condemning to most of us. <laughs> but still, we think of the Bible as being pretty long. But if you think about what is said about our God in the Bible, the Bible says, who could number your thoughts? How vast are the sum of them? God is all-knowing. That means anything he told you, Anything he decided to tell you is him seriously limiting the amount he could tell you. Is that fair to say? 
that he could say a lot more. So God doesn't waste his time, waste his breath when he writes the word of God, when he gives us the scriptures. And so repetition should tell you all the more this really matters. When Jesus would talk to his disciples or to the crowds, a lot of the times he would preface it by saying, truly, truly, I say to you. And that word is the same word that we use for amen. Now, we can only say amen after something is stated because we affirm it after the fact. But Jesus, as one who declares truth as the truth, he says truly, truly beforehand. But when he says that, you know it matters. When the Hebrew language wants to communicate importance to you, it'll say two words, the same word. It'll say holy, and really what it means, if it says holy twice, it means holy, holier. Right? Don't breeze over this. Holy, holier. There's only one attribute of God that is said three times. And it's holy. Is God love? Not rhetorical. Is God love? Yes. Yeah. Is God just? Yes. Is He wrathful? Yes. Is He all good? Yes. It never says that He's Good, good, good. Wrath, wrath, wrath. Love, love, love. But it does say that he's holy, holy, holy. We tend to relate to people and experiences by trying to find something between us that we can both understand. Right? Some kind of experience that we've both had, a movie we've both seen. And we tend to relate even to God based off of attributes that we feel like we share and we experience. And one of the most foundational truths about God is not something that we share with Him. It's His complete and utter otherness from us. He is holy, holier, holiest. That's who He is. That's what that means. It's elevating it every time it's stated. Holy, holier, holiest. Holy, you think about even in the temple, there was the holy place, and then there was a place that was inside of that that was more holy, and what was that called? The holy of holies. And in that place, Isaiah sees God, who's holy, holy, holy. Other, other, other. Set apart, set apart, set apart. And in verse 4 we see that merely stating this, that holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. The mere statement of it, it says that the foundations of the thresholds shook. At the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. The testimony of the seraphim one to another, just talking about who God is, was so powerful that it shook the building, it filled the room with smoke, and it invokes fear in the heart of Isaiah. He says in verse 5, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When he says, woe is me, it's not the way that we use the word woe. Like, whoa. Wow. It means cursed. Undone. It's a warning. Just scan your eye over to Isaiah chapter 5, verse 8. This is Isaiah prophesying to the people of Israel. 
What is the first word of that verse? Woe. Woe to those who join house to house. What about verse 11? What's the first word? Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink. What about verse 18? Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood. What about verse 20? What about verse 21? What about verse 22? Jesus says to the Pharisees, Woe to you, Pharisees. Jesus says to Chorazin and Bethsaida, these cities that did not receive him, that were his local towns, he said, Woe to you, it will be better for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you. Woe is usually something you say as a prophet to someone else, as a warning from God. But when Isaiah, the prophet, the man of God, when he sees God, he says, woe is who? Me. Woe is me. When you see God, when you sit under the radiant holiness and glory of God for yourself, you are only brought to a right view of yourself. Right? Being exposed to who God is instantly changes your opinion and your perspective of yourself. You say, this God is totally other. This God's goodness is a threat to me. Your nature is revealed to yourself. He doesn't say, woe is me, I mean well. I'm just not that good at it. Woe is me, I've tried my best and hopefully God will honor that. Woe is me, I do mostly good things. Woe is me, I do more good than bad. He says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He's aware of his sin. He's aware of sin more generally. He says, I have sinned in my lips. The people around me have sinned in their lips. And that my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. My eyes have not seen a King, the King. When God visits people, they realize who they are. If you want to flip there, you can, or you can stay where you're at. But going back to the book of Job, at the very end of Job, after all of Job's wrestlings, we talked about how Job is not brought to a place where he can really accuse God of anything, because when God shows up, God just says, this is who I am. And this is how God addresses Job. Mind you, this is the Job who is suffering. God says in Job 38.3, he says, dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. He says in verse 35, can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to, to, say to you, here we are. Can you summon lightning? And they're like, where do you want us, Lord? Of course not. He says again in verse 7 of chapter 40, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. And in verse 40, Job realizes who he is. He says in verse 4, Behold, I am of small account. He says, I lay my hand on my mouth. I've spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. And then God goes into it again saying, this is who I am. He talks about behemoth and leviathan, these animals that Job can't even understand some of his creatures that he's made, let alone God the creator. And then this is Job's conclusion of himself. 
He says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Job says, hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. This is him quoting God. I had heard of you by hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. And what does he think of himself? He says, therefore, I despise myself. And I repent in dust and ashes. Job dare tread on the territory that says, is God just in this situation? Is God allowed to do this? And he says, I have seen you, I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. When Jesus appears to Paul on the road to where is he going? Yeah, Damascus. And what is his plan in Damascus? What's he going to do? This is when he's still Saul. He's not Paul yet. Yeah, he's on his way to persecute Christians. So he's on his way to persecute Christians, and Jesus appears to him, and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And we can spend time talking about that, but what I think is interesting is, is Paul, then Saul, answers him. He says, Lord, who are you? Lord, who are you? One thing he does know is that whoever is talking to him is Lord. And Jesus says, I'm Jesus who you are persecuting. And so when mankind is confronted by who God really is, it puts you in perspective. We flip back to Isaiah 6. God does not leave Isaiah in his torment. He doesn't leave Isaiah wallowing. It says that then one of the seraphim in verse 6 flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. God's holiness solves unholiness. God's holiness will solve the solution of every other creature's unholiness by two ways. Destruction or redemption. God's holiness will not have any trouble burning through the sin, burning through the rabble, getting rid of all that can't survive in its presence. But God's holiness is also such that He is determined to save. He is determined to make people who can be in His presence. And instead of it being a terror, it's a joy. One of the things, one of the mysteries I want to solve this week, if you haven't resolved it in your mind, if you're not convinced of this already, is why in the New Testament is life with God characterized as peace and joy and hope and confidence and happiness? When we're told to do things that if you did them in the Old Testament, you'd be put to death. We're told in the New Testament to draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. We're told in the Old Testament very, very specific rules on when you can do that. And if you violate those rules, you know what happens to you? You die. What has happened? Has our God changed? Has He gotten softer over time? Our God is holy, 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 unchanging. And we see a glimpse of His redemptive plan. We see that in the moment that Isaiah sees his sin and says, I am a sinner. I am a sinner. 
God provides a way of salvation for it. Something that Isaiah would understand. He takes a coal from the altar where the sacrifices are made, where they're burned up to God. He takes a coal from there and the seraphim touches it to his lips. Why his lips? What did Isaiah just finish saying? My lips are unclean. The people around me, it's, it's, it's an analogy. It's, a, it's an understanding that the words I say are unclean. I am unclean in my essence. The Bible says that from the heart, the mouth speaks. Right? It's who I am coming out. It's unclean. It's the people around me. It's unclean. And God provides a way. He says that your guilt is taken away. In the way that a, a burning coal would purge it away. He says it's taken away and your sin atoned for. One of the most shocking verses, if you don't just breeze over it, if you start from the, the point of understanding God for who He is, this entirely other, entirely different, entirely holy, that He doesn't miss a single thing, that His justice is exhaustive. It has, he has full justice. That His wrath is perfect. That His knowledge is complete. That He doesn't miss a single intent of your heart. That the times where you do things and you don't understand them yourself, it says that He searches and inquires and knows the heart. That this God, He says of Himself later in the book of Isaiah, says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up. Who is the one who is high and lifted up? God, Yahweh. Right? That's what it said about Him when Isaiah saw Him in the temple. It says, Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. He says, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. In the glorious wisdom and mercy of God, he says, I dwell in the high and the holy place. And also with the one who is of lowly and contrite heart. The only way, the only way to have a lowly and contrite, a, a humble and repentant heart is to see God for who He is. To understand you for who you are. And to realize that our only plea to the Lord is mercy. Because He's holy, holy, holy. Holy, holier, holiest. That's the Lord our God. That's who this God is. We have to start from there. We have to start from who is our God. The next sermon we're going to do after encountering this God is ask this question. How did the Bible tell this story of how do you survive this God? Right? Because that's kind of Isaiah's immediate realization is that I have no hope. Woe is me. How do you survive this God? And the next question, what does it look like to draw near with confidence to this God? And then finally, as a believer, what does it look like to be indwelt by this God? To have the Holy Spirit inside of you. God says He is happy, content to dwell with the lowly. And the only way to be brought low and right before God is to regard Him the way He says He is. And then that's also the only way to look at our Lord and Savior and see exactly what He accomplished. He didn't just fill the 
gap you were missing of goodness. You had no hope. We were in the world as rebels. And that Savior made a full and complete payment as the Holy God. Let's pray.